Archbishop Mark is a very typical scholar and speaker, and we look forward to him sharing his insights and taking us deeper into the theme of mercy in the Gospel of Luke. Please welcome our Archbishop. Thank you very much, Andrea. Not so much for that biodata on me. I get rather weary of hearing it. But nonetheless, but thanks very much for the prayer because um, we are at a point in the, the journey of the church through time where we do have to become a more prayerful, more meditative, more contemplative church. About that I have not the slightest doubt. The only question is how we do that and certainly when we are trying to get purchase on the word of God, the communication of God in scripture, that a certain silence, that, that attentiveness which opens the ears of the heart is absolutely fundamental. Uh, the Bible is not an object, it's a subject, it's a voice that must be listened to and the voice is an elusive voice in many ways, not in every way, but it does take a particular kind of attentiveness which itself implies a kind of discipline. It is not easily learned. I'm not here to talk about prayer, but let me just say last night I was in fact speaking about prayer to another group of people and I said that prayer is the most natural thing of all to the human being. A prayer that begins with a listening to God before ever it becomes a speaking. But we are like, because of sin, we're like people who've had a stroke and we have to relearn the most fundamental skills of human life, those things that are most natural to us. And one of those is prayer. Anyway, enough, end of same introduction, but it's all a way of saying thank you very much to um, the young meditators who in many ways I think are pointing the way ahead for all of us. The young, in fact, can and indeed must lead the church. The first reading in the lectionary today was the call of Jeremiah, who was called to a prophetic ministry in a time of utter chaos, really, as, as Judah plummeted towards the Babylonian exile. And very understandably, Jeremiah's protest was, well, I'm too young, which was true. But it had nothing to do with the divine call. So that there is the young man leading in a way he didn't see coming, but which becomes unforgettable, and we still hear his words now. Similarly, the young World Youth Day is a case in point where the young are leading the church, but so too into those uh, quiet depths of deep attentiveness. The young can lead us and indeed are tonight. Now, it's a very long time since we gathered quite like this. I can hardly remember when it was, the first session. Three months ago. What did I say? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I tend to forget what I've said even um, at the end of the session itself, let alone three months later. But I was talking about what we call the Old Testament. So just, just a quick word to refresh both your memory and mine, particularly if you weren't here and have no memory to refresh. I was saying there that in the Old Testament you, are, you encounter and are encountered by a God who names himself in action. And therefore if we talk about the mercy of God, which in a sense is all the Old Testament talks about, 
Mercy isn't just one among many themes. It is what the Old Testament uh, is about. It's what uh, the Old Testament describes or enacts. In other words, God doing mercy. I was reading a book yesterday by a, a man we've had in Brisbane in recent days, Monsignor, Monsignor Thomas Halik from the Czech Republic. Fascinating character. Won the Templeton Prize not long ago. That's a very prestigious and lucrative prize for religion. And uh, he's just recently been awarded an honorary doctorate from Oxford. So a fascinating character. And one of the things he was saying in this book is uh, not only is mercy a doing word, a verb, so too is God. God's not really a noun. God's, God's personal, but God's just not just another person. Uh, God isn't just another category. God is the ground of being. But as he was saying, God is a verb. And that's profoundly biblical. God is what God does. And the fundamental, all-defining act that God does, according to the scripture, the Hebrew Bible, is set slaves free. That is the kind of primordial, foundational action of God, which begins and in one sense ends the great naming of God that the Bible offers. So mercy is what God does, and what God does is liberate slaves. Now, I'm not just talking of slaves once upon a time in Egypt, because what the Bible does in interpreting us, and again I stress as a key point, that before ever you and I interpret the Bible, which we do every time we read it or hear it, the Bible interprets us. We say this is the word of the Lord, or the word of the Lord. We could just as easily say, well, the interp- this is the interpretation of the Lord. This is the interpretation that God offers us in the midst of all our confusions, uncertainties, ambiguities and opacities. Because we can be opaque and ambiguous and uncertain and confused. And God understands that and doesn't leave us simply adrift on the morass of all that. God communicates with us in a way that interprets our own confusions to us and the massive confusions and uncertainties of the world. God knows we inhabit a moment in history that looks as uncertain as any I can remember in my now long life. Who will help us to understand what's going on in a moment like this? The answer is God. He doesn't sit up in some heaven, you know, dumb, looking the other way or just saying it's all too hard. This is a God who communicates with us. And I'm not necessarily talking in some crude sense of a booming voice from a pink cloud. But but there are subtle, deep, powerful, unmistakable communications. Some of them are communications in silence. Some of them come at you like a tsunami and I could go on and on and on and on and on. The ways in which God communicates are, are, are endlessly various. But that's what we're talking about, and it's always God interpreting us to us and for us. So we're the slaves. So so the only question is, in what way am I a slave? In what way do I need to be set free, to put it a little more positively? Because if I say I don't need to be set free, well, don't try the Bible, don't bother with it. Go and read something else. Barbara Cartland. 
Donald Trump. <laughs> but don't bother with the Bible. See, the Bible takes us down into places we would rather not go. This is not escapist literature. And it takes us down into uh, areas of our life where there is unfreedom, where we do need to be set free. And it only does that because it, ha- it contains itself the promise that there is a freedom which is not cheap, it is hard won. But it's a genuine promise. Now, to move from the Old Testament to the New Testament is in a sense to keep reading the same story. There is only one Bible. All right, I know that there's a certain disjunction between Old and New Testament. But keep in mind that the New Testament was composed from about the late 40s to the early 100s. It's about over a period of about 60 or 70 years. By contrast, the Old Testament was composed over a period of 1,200 years or a 1,000 years perhaps, at least a 1,000. So you can't compare the two, and they're not meant to be compared. In many ways, the New Testament to which we move tonight is a how to read the Old Testament. Because, you see, the early Christians, all of whom were Jewish initially, the experience of encountering Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the one whom they'd seen crucified, put in the tomb, and then they couldn't deny it, they encountered him risen from the dead. At first they didn't have words to talk about what the experience was, but eventually they came to the kind of language we're familiar with, like resurrection. But initially they didn't know what it was, what's happening. They didn't have language to describe this utterly new experience that turned the whole world on its head. And in the light of that experience, they found they had to go back to to read their scripture. The only Bible they had was what we call the Old Testament. They had to go back to Genesis 1.1. And as they read, as it were looking through the lens or the prism of that encounter, everything looked different. The text was the same. But they had that experience of a key that unlocked meaning everywhere. So that when God's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and God said light and there was light becomes in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and eventually this comes to the thunderous proclamation, the word was made flesh. It's Jesus. Jesus was the one spoken. Light out of darkness in the beginning and there was light is the language of the resurrection. You see the way it works? So they go back and they read the scriptures, every line. And the whole thing starts leaping at them from the page, like a blowtorch almost. And they see him and they hear him. He was always there. But he emerges from the depths in what we call the incarnation, when the word is made flesh. Now, in that sense... What the New Testament proclaims is the the Jesus taking flesh among us and taking flesh to the point where he shares our death. How could he not if he's living a, a genuinely and fully human life? He didn't just go through the motions. He, li- he actually lived a human life. 
as we say, in all things but sin. Now, why do we say all things but sin? Because sin isn't native to the human being. You sin and I sin. Of course we do, but it's not native to us. Sin is alien to the human being. God didn't create us to sin. So Jesus, we say, is sinless because we say he's fully human. You want to know what God intended the human being to be? Look at him. He's more yourself than you are. It's an astonishing truth. But if you want to know who you are, you've got to look and look hard and long at the risen Christ who in rising from the dead loses none of his scars as I've said so often before. The only difference now is the wounds have become scars and the scars shine like the sun. They're trophies now, not emblems of defeat. That's why where Thomas, in that unforgettable story, Jesus says, reach out Thomas and touch the wounds now and understand what you touch that you're not touching emblems of defeat, you're touching trophies of victory. Thomas touches the wound that shines like the sun and that's when the cry comes forth, my Lord and my God. So it's this Jesus, not not Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and gave us good example or something. What good is that to us? You know, good boy, good girl Christianity where Jesus gave us good example long ago and we've got to try terribly hard to imitate him. The harder we try, the worse it gets. That's not Christianity. Christianity is this encounter, as real for us as it ever was for those first disciples, an encounter with Jesus Christ who was crucified, is risen, and he's here and now or nowhere and never. And he is here among us in all kinds of ways that define defy language he is among us as the final revelation of what God's mercy is and does so if I talk about liberation as the fundamental action that the all merciful God does what I'm saying therefore is that in Jesus Christ crucified and risen here and now there is the experience of the fullness of the liberation God offers you won't find it anywhere else if you're looking anywhere else for that for the the fullness of that freedom, you'll be looking for the right thing in the wrong place. Augustine's unforgettable description of sin. Looking for the right thing, freedom, yeah. You're made to be free. But if you look in the wrong place, you find the exact opposite. And we'll see that perhaps later on tonight. Now, the earliest texts of the New Testament were not the Gospels. They were Paul's letters. Now, Paul's letters imply a story, the story of the the birth of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Mind you, Paul, in his letters, says almost nothing about the public ministry of Jesus, and nothing, well, all he says about the birth of Jesus is that he was born of a woman. Well, that's not big news. Uh, So Paul isn't interested in the kind of stuff that we find in the Gospels. But you know massively from these early letters that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. You see, Paul, in my view, didn't know Jesus personally, never met him. But he encountered him in a way that knocked him down like the tsunami on the road to uh, Damascus. And it's out of that experience of encounter that 
he speaks about Jesus as crucified and risen because that's the Jesus that, that knocked Paul down on the way to Damascus. So Paul writes letters and he writes them on the run. Well, sometimes he's not on the run, actually he's in prison. But Paul's letters were a, they were a kind of a third option. He, he liked to go himself, if possible, when there was trouble. And there was always trouble in his communities. You think there's trouble in the church now? Well, you know, welcome aboard. There was trouble from day one. There was no golden era. Forget that little dream. Uh, there was trouble, big trouble in those communities. Paul, if he could, would go personally. If he couldn't go personally, he'd send one of his uh, team leaders, people like Timothy and Silvanus and others, a big team. And sometimes he'd take, listen, take this letter with you. I can't go. You, you go and you take the letter. All right, so, so that's, where, that's where the texts of the New Testament begin. The earliest of them is probably 1 Thessalonians, which might have been written about 48 or 49. Who knows? Late, let's say late 40s. The question then is why Christianity moved at all beyond letters. In other words, if we take Mark as the first gospel, which I do, why did Mark write a thing as weird as his gospel? Why didn't he just write a letter? Because clearly... The community, I think, in Rome was in massive trouble. They were facing a threat the like of which they'd never faced before, the Neronic, the persecutions under Nero, where it became a capital offence simply to be Christian. You didn't have to do anything other than be Christian. Like being a Jew under Hitler, you didn't have to do anything, commit a crime. You just had to be a Jew. Well, under Nero, you just had to be a Christian. Now, you know... This was a big pressure and problem for the Roman community. Therefore, Mark, for pastoral reasons of the greatest urgency, decides to, to write a different kind of text. He writes a story. It's really a passion story with a long introduction. Now, what's a story do? A story puts together all kinds of elements that seem chaotic, puts them together in a, a way that has form or shape or direction. A story has a beginning, a middle and an end. So what, what storytelling does is takes the, the seeming chaos of experience, shapes it in a particular way to give it purpose, shape, direction. And that's what Mark does. At a time of, of what seemed chaos in the community, he writes this story to say, no, no, Beyond the chaos, there is the shape that only a proper understanding of the death of Jesus will give. You are living the crucifixion of Jesus. Was it the end? Was it death? Was it failure? Was it destruction? It seemed to be all of those, but it wasn't. In fact, it was a strange kind of birth. Whoever would have believed it? And you can only understand that in the light of Easter. So, without going on and on about Mark, Christian storytelling emerges not just for some academic reason, but because it was the only kind of text that could meet the drama of the situation. The question then is, if Mark writes such a powerful text, and it may well be the most powerful text ever written, if you think of Christianity's fateful impact on history, if that text written... Hard to say exactly when, sometime in the 60s probably, to do with the, the persecutions under Nero, 64 or 5. 
Why then did Luke, to whom we now turn, why did Luke bother to write a text so utterly different and a text that, that amounts to one quarter of the New Testament? If you take not only the Gospel of Luke, as we call him, we don't really know what his name is, but if you, presuming it's a he, I think it is, he writes the Gospel, but don't forget he also writes the Acts of the Apostles. It's a two-part work. And if you put the two parts together, you've got one quarter of the New Testament. Now, writing these days is easy. You just flick on the computer and away you go. It's great, isn't it? You can pump out text at a rate of knots, beautifully bloated because the act of writing is so easy. It wasn't easy for Luke or anyone writing at that time. It was hard work. It was expensive. So Luke must have had a mighty powerful motive to take up the pen, get his nose over the papyrus or whatever it was, and begin writing the Gospel and Acts. Uh, my own view, for what it's worth, and I hear, here I, I, I offer you the potted version, is that he was dealing in the 80s when he writes, so it's, it's maybe close to 20 years after Mark, and keeping in mind that the, the, the crucial event of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 had happened. Now, everything was different after the catastrophe of 70, when the Romans flattened Jerusalem and put the temple to the torch. Judaism was changed forever, so too was Christianity in all kinds of fascinating ways that can't detain us here. But Luke was dealing with a second generation community or communities who were, who were losing the energy and impetus for mission. And what he seeks to do in telling his tale in my own reading of the text is to stir up new energy for mission, to light new fires for the proclamation of the gospel. And what the gospel itself, the third gospel as we call it, what it does is it provides a kind of school of witness. You must have witnessed something before you can proclaim it. The gospel is, is all about what Christian witness looks like and the Acts of the Apostles is what Christian proclamation becomes out of the womb of that witness. In other words, you need a, you need, in order for there to be new energy for mission, there has to be a new seeing of Jesus, a new hearing of Jesus. In other words, you have to encounter him more deeply and powerfully if you want to proclaim him to the whole world. world more richly and um, powerfully again. There is not, there's all this talk of the new evangelization that we've had in recent years in the church. I'm all for it in one sense, but it troubles me that it becomes a kind of a mantra, as if you know, you're going to say it often enough and magically it's going to happen. Well, it doesn't. We need a new energy for a new evangelization, to call it that. And where will the energy come from? It'll only come from a new experience of encountering Jesus Christ crucified and risen in all kinds of ways. Certainly deep prayer is one of them. The scripture is another. Service of the poor is another. These are, this is not rocket science. So, Luke tells a story which in many ways is a story of mercy. 
It's not by chance that it's Luke's gospel that we hear through this Jubilee year of mercy, nor is it by chance that the, uh, the motto, as it were, of this Jubilee year of mercy is taken from Luke chapter 6, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. In many ways, it is the mercy of God which is at the very heart. Again, it's not one among a number of themes. The mercy is what Luke is proclaiming, what we have to offer the world, but you have to experience it before you can offer it. So you want to be a witness, you want to be equipped for witness, well, you better see something and hear something. What are you going to see? You're going to see mercy done. You better hear it. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Now, as he tells the tale, or as he sets out in the telling of the tale, he gives us a cleft sign. Now, some of you are musicians and I am not. I can sing rather sweetly, but I'm not a musician, but even I know that uh, what I know what a clef sign is. Do you know what it is? It, it tells you what key the, the thing is in. Now, Luke is not writing music, but if I could use the musical metaphor, at, at the start of this long narrative of Luke Acts, 28, 24 chapters of the Gospel and 28 of Acts, he, he gives us a clef sign. And the clef sign he gives is what we call the Magnificat. The hymn of liberation put on the lips of, of Mary right at the start in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2. Chapter 1. Oh, it's been a long day. Right in the very first chapter of the Gospel. Now, you know the hymn? My soul glorifies the Lord. So let, let's just... For a moment, look at it as the cleft sign of all that will follow. My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Okay? For he has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is from age to age on those who fear him. So there's the word, buzzword, his, God's mercy. Is from, it's not once upon a time, it is from age to age on those who fear him. Now, the rest of what follows in the hymn, and by the way, interestingly, this is a footnote, all the great biblical hymns of liberation are put on the lips of women. It's a fascinating thing in the Bible, and it's not an accident. What follows? He puts forth his arm in strength, so mercy is not weakness. He puts forth his arm in strength and scatters the proud-hearted. He casts the mighty from their thrones and raises the lowly. He fills the starving with good things, sends the rich away empty. He protects Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy. Now, what's happening? The way the hymn describes the mercy, what God does in mercy, is overturn the seemingly non-negotiable status quo. 
Because what is the seemingly non-negotiable status quo that the Bible rubs your nose in, and Luke's Gospel does too? One, the mighty sit on their thrones and they sit there forever and the lowly are ground into the dust. Uh, the starving starve, they always do, and the rich are filled with plenty. Israel is not protected. Israel is crushed by the game of empire, as it certainly was in the first century of the Roman occupation. Now, there are the seemingly non-negotiable status quos. And, and on the lips of Mary, well, from her we hear a vision of the God, the, the all-merciful God, who doesn't just have nice thoughts and feelings, but the all-merciful God who acts to overturn all those seemingly non-negotiable status quos. And in fact, the story that follows in the Gospel and Acts will simply tell the, uh, the story of that overturning. And that's the Gospel. It's not politics we're talking, it's certainly not military power, it's power of another kind that works through weakness, but that overturns all that is most seemingly non-negotiable and in the end death-dealing. Now, Luke offers a quite precise profile of the status quo that he and his community or communities knew. Now, Luke... I did my doctoral studies on the Gospel of Luke. And when you do a doctoral thesis, it's a bit like being married to someone. It's the last thing you think of at night, and it's the first thing you think of in the morning. I think that's what marriage is like, isn't it? <laughs> but that I was haunted by this nameless author with whom I was spending a very significant part of my life and, and huge amounts of my creative energy, such as it is. And the question was, who are you? And every time I felt I was coming close to Luke, it was like a mirage, he'd just vanish. And all I could say after years of living with him, day after day after day, was that he was either, he was either a Gentile who had Judaism somehow in his bones. You, mean, you know what I mean by a Gentile, non-Jew? Highly educated. There's no question. That, don't ask me if he was a doctor. I don't know. You can't prove it from the text. He may have been. Highly educated Gentile who had the Jewish thing in his bones or he was what they call a diaspora Jew in other words, a Jew born and educated and living outside the Holy Land who had the, the world, the, the, the Hellenistic world, as we say, <clears throat> the Gentile world in his bones. <clears throat> so take your pick. But he is fascinatingly bicultural, bi-religious, bilingual. He writes the best Greek in the New Testament. That's not hard. Um, so... The status quo or status quos that he describes or builds into the telling of the tale are both the, what, the status quo in the Jewish world and in the Gentile world. So he's kind of, 
He's building bridges, as Christianity had to do, particularly after the catastrophe of 70, the destruction. Before 70, Christianity is largely a Jewish-Christian phenomenon, to the point where people, most people, perhaps many people certainly, thought Christianity was just another messianic sect within Judaism. After 70, Christianity becomes less and less a Jewish-Christian phenomenon and more and more a Gentile-Christian phenomenon. Again, keep the year 70 firmly in view. Now, what I'm going to do in the time we have this evening, I'm just going to give you four instances of the status quo that Jesus and the gospel overturn. And I'll illustrate each of these by reference to Luke's text. The first of them is that bad, good people, or at least not bad people, can be caught hopelessly in a bad system, to call it that. Now remember, this is not once upon a time. This can be as true today as it ever was in the time of, uh, of Luke. The parade example of what I mean is the Good Samaritan, which again is found only in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, almost all, I, I didn't compute this, but almost all of the texts that I'll refer to tonight are particular to Luke. Now, you know the text extremely well. The priest and the Levite are not bad men. I mean, I presume they're like you and me, you know, they're the usual mix of good and bad. But what they do is bad. They see a naked man who's had all his clothes stolen and a naked man who may be dead. They can't tell. He's certainly been had the pulp beaten out of him. He may be dead, he may be alive. They can't tell from the other side of the road and that's the problem. And they walk on by. Now why? These were men whose livelihood depended upon their service in the temple in Jerusalem and they were just coming back, going home, having done their stint of service. That was their job and that's how they fed their family. And if, in order to, to perform their duties at the temple, they had to maintain what was called ritual purity. And if they became ritually impure... It was a very long and costly process of restoring yourself to ritual purity and therefore qualifying yourself to resume work. Now, what's the problem? First of all, he's naked. Now, in the Middle East then and even now, your ethnic identity or even your religious identity is, is uh, announced by your clothing. You can... You can um, you can tell who's who's who in the Middle East, and you certainly could back in uh, the time of Jesus, uh, who people were because of the way they dressed. And But he's not dressed. And he might be a Gentile. And what happens if they go over and touch a Gentile? They're ritually impure. The separation of Jew and Gentile was the fundament of the whole religious cosmos. The second thing is they don't know if he's dead or alive. 
And if they touch a dead body, what happens? Same deal. They're disqualified from, from temple service and they can't feed their family. Is it worth the risk? What would you have done? You might have walked on the other side of the road. I can't take the risk. I have to feed the family. So down they go. You see what I mean by they're not bad people. That's not the point. But they are caught in a bad system. And to make it worse, it's a bad religious system. Now, most of you, I think, have been around long enough to know that there are such things and that they're not once upon a time. Religious systems where you have good people but somehow imprisoned and imprisoned to the point where good people do bad things because of fear, because of the system, and so on. The Samaritan, who becomes the embodiment of the mercy of God, and look again, this is not just a thought or feeling, there's plenty of action from the Samaritan. He's the least likely to do what is done. He doesn't give a damn about his ethnic or religious identity. He doesn't give a damn whether he's, he's, he's live or dead. What's he see? He sees a human body in desperate need in the ditch and goes across the road and picks him up, touches him, which can't have been pleasant, puts him on the donkey, takes him to the, the inn, pays his bill and says, I'll come back and I'll pay extra if it is extra. You see what mercy begins to look like? It is very much a verb. It's what he does. So the status quo is good people caught in a bad system. How can they get out of it? There looks to be no exit. That's the question that Luke is posing. Is there an exit? Is there a way out? Well, the way out is the Samaritan who overturns the whole status quo. And it's this least likely of characters, the loathed Samaritan, who embodies the mercy that does the overturning. The second passage to which I turn is not dissimilar in some ways, although it doesn't look in any way similar initially. It's the story of the rich man, often called Devos, though in fact he has no name in the story, that Luke gives us in chapter 16. Now again, you know the story very well. The rich man's rich. And Lazarus at his gate is poor, dreadfully poor. The dogs lick the sores and this sort of vivid detail. Now, why, why does it, was, was, was Diva, is to give him that name, which he doesn't have in the text, as I say, but let's give it to him for, for convenience sake. I mean, do you think Diva was a bad man? I don't. 
I think, again, he was caught in a, a hopelessly bad system. Let me describe the system. In the world that Dives and probably Lazarus knew, you talk to your peers. In other words, Dives would have talked to other people of his social standing and probably his economic standing. That would have been the expectation of the culture at this time. Lazarus would have talked, well, to other beggars or whoever they were. And each of them would have said, well, that's the way the world is. That's the status quo. So if you'd said to Divas, excuse me, why don't you leave your lavish meal table and go to your front gate and talk to that, that beggar or better still, do something. Bring him in, bind his wounds and give him a feed at your table. And, and Dives would have looked at you and said, well, why? Because again, social norms would have said you only mingle in your class. So I say it's similar for all its dissimilarities because again, the point is not that the rich man is a bad man, but he is caught in a bad system and is unable to even see that the system is bad. That's just the way things are. And again, you read your own heart or, or scrutinise your own heart. How often we are left with that feeling of impotence, basically, but of blindness as well, that's just the way things are. You can't do anything about it. I mean, I... I presume Devo didn't like the fact that there was this guy down there with the dogs licking his sauce, but it's the way things are. I can't do anything about it. Okay, now, so there, there is one of the seemingly non-negotiable status quo. Not bad people, but in a bad and merciless system, a system which makes good people merciless. And this is not once upon a time. The second of these status quos, as I'm calling them. God, can ha God is all holy, unspeakably holy. We have lost a little bit, perhaps a lot, of that sense of the, the overwhelming holiness of God. Sanctus, 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 Kadosh, 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 Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, the, the tremendousness of, of, of God. and so It's not a strong thing for us, but it's a very, very strong thing in the Scripture. Now, because God is all holy, completely other, transcendent, indescribable majesty, and so on, this God can have no truck of any kind, no contact with the sinner between the all-holiness of God and sin. There can be no contact. Therefore, if the human being wants contact with God, and we do, the only way is for us to find our way into a kind of sinlessness. But what's the problem there? We keep sinning. 
So, what do you find in the New Testament? At this point I turn to the famous text which gives us the call of the first disciples in Luke. You know the story Jesus is teaching by the lake? Peter isn't actually listening to the teaching. He's got too much work to do. He's he's fishing and he's washing his nets. And washing the nets is important because if you don't wash the nets, they can rot and nets cost a lot of money. Peter was a businessman. So uh, at the end of it all, uh, Jesus... He, he requisitioned Simon's boat, which must have really been a drag for Simon. I've got work to do. You do your preaching, I do my fishing. But Jesus requisitions the boat. Okay. So he, sat, he sits down and teaches the crowd from the boat, we're told. Then, now this is where the action starts. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water. Here's Dukinaltum. Throw your net out into the deep and let down the net. And what does Simon say? Listen, we've been working hard all night long. You know what we've caught? Zip. Not a fish to show. I know the lake. You stick to your preaching and I'll do the fishing. I know the lake. There's nothing there. And here's the rabbi. What a joke. So, you know, throw your nets over. Come on. And what's he say? If you say so, okay. Because keep in mind, just before this, Jesus has healed Simon's mother-in-law. She got up and made them dinner. So in that sense, you could say Peter owes Jesus one. So... When they did this, they caught so many fish, their nets were beginning to break and so on. You know the story. They call the others and and having seen this demonstration of something which for Peter would have been bizarre, this is there is a power at work in this rabbi that is very strange and is the power of God. It could only be that. He knew the lake better than I did. So in other words, this is the, the, the all-holy God somehow at work in the rabbi. Peter's seen it with his own eyes. He can't deny it. And what does he say? Well, what does he do, first of all? He falls at Jesus' knees. And here's the crunch. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. See, See the world that Peter voices? In you I have seen the holiness of God, the power, and I'm a sinner. Go away, Lord. You can have nothing to do with me. You see, the same thing in the call of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is called by God in the temple and and, and says, "I I am lost, for I have seen the Holy One of God in the temple and I... I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, I'm a sinner. The holiness of God can have nothing to do with me. Peter says it here. Get away from me, Lord. You can have nothing to do with me because I'm a sinner. And what does Jesus say? And this is the overturning of the status quo. Don't be afraid. And he is afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. 
When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. So, so the world that Peter knows says, get away from me, Lord. The world that Jesus reveals is the exact opposite. What is it? I'm going to come even closer to you. I'm going to embrace you and call you to myself so that you become part of my ministry and even become part of me. So, so the, the, the new status quo of mercy is the divine embrace of sin. Not the God who walks away or shuns the sinner, but the God who in fact embraces the sinner in order to transfigure the sin, to break its power. You see the same thing again in the famous passage in chapter 7, a little later. Fascinating story, again only found in Luke, where Jesus is invited to dinner by Simon the Pharisee. But Simon, you see, is out to uh, test Jesus. This is not genuine hospitality. It is a kind of genuine trickery. And fascinatingly, the sinful woman appears in the house. Now, how did she get there? Was she part of the trap? Do you think she just walked through the front door? Anyone home? It's the sinful woman... Or is she part of the trap? Get her in here and let's see what he does. This will test him. Now, what does Simon say? Uh, If this man were a prophet... See, what's he testing? He's not a prophet. If he were a prophet, Simon says to himself... He would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. See, again, for a woman to touch a man or a man to touch a woman in Judaism was unthinkable. You see it still if you get into a taxi coming from the airport in Tel Aviv, going up to Jerusalem under the Sharutz. The Orthodox Jews will not sit in the same taxi as a woman. If a woman gets in, they take about seven or eight passengers. If a woman gets in, they get out. You can say it's bizarre, but, but, but there's a whole logic to it. And this is the world that, that Simon, the Pharisee, would have known. And see, interestingly, Jesus does touch women. It's a fascinating thing, and it's seriously countercultural. He would have known what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. Now, what's he implying? In other words, if he's a prophet speaking God's word, And she's, well, we all know she's a sinner. She's a shocker. But therefore he shouldn't allow her anywhere near him. Again, God and sin can have nothing to do with one another. That separation is fundamental to the religious cosmos that Simon the Pharisee knew and that Jesus would have known too. What's he do? Turn it on its head. And he allows the woman to touch him. Why? Because it's the embrace of sin. It's the only way the power of sin can be broken and the human being can be healed in that deep way that we need to be healed of the wound, the cosmic wound of sin. Your sins are forgiven, he says. 
Your faith has saved you. So what's faith begin to look like? Faith begins to look like saying yes to the overturning that Jesus works, to experience it in our own life and to become part of the action of that overturning in the world. That's what the church is supposed to be. The church is the the great overturning. Or if not, we're just part of a bad system with a lot of good people in it. A merciless church. Could there be any greater contradiction than their oxymoron than that? I doubt it. So there we have the second of these four status quos. Let's turn to the third. The third is really the the fundamental logic of pagan religion, which is as powerful these days as it ever was back in the days of Luke or Jesus. It's summed up in the old Latin tag, do ut des, I give to you so that you give to me. It's kind of, it's religion understood as a a transaction. In other words, if if I sacrifice something to God, I'm offering God something, but why am I offering something to God? to get something back. So that in the end, pagan religion is worried about who? About me, yes. Isn't that strange? Yeah, pagan religion's all of, I give God something, yes God, you can have this, but I want something from you, so I am the focus. Now, listen by contrast to the words of Jesus. I'm not using a text that I'm familiar with here. My old Bible I couldn't find. Where Jesus says, if you... um, No... Jesus says, all right, you've got to have a dinner party. Who do you invite? Uh, don't invite those who can invite you back. Invite the, 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 the blind, the lame, the poor, those who can't invite you back. You see how he subverts the whole logic of pagan religion and indeed of the pagan world. Invite those who can't pay you back. In other words, it's not a transaction. It's not two-way traffic, do or des. It's one-way traffic. Invite those who can't invite you back. Something similar you find in chapter 22, where they're at the Last Supper. And they're arguing, this is great, about who is the greatest. And what does he say? The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors or patrons. Keep the word in mind. Not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like one who who serves. Now, the whole of the Greco-Roman world was based upon a system of patron and client. There were the rich 
who has the money and the power. And your only hope, if you didn't have the money and the power, was to attach yourself to one of these patrons or benefactors. And if you didn't, you were gone. So the world was made up, and still is in many ways, made up of a few patrons or benefactors and a lot of clients. This applies on the individual level as it does on the level of the world economy. Now, what does Jesus say? Well, first of all, he puts a bomb under that whole system. He says there is only one benefactor, there is only one patron. And who is that? God. Everyone else is a client. Now here he subverts the whole economic base of the Hellenistic world. And this is where Christianity has always been something so much more than merely spiritual. Implicitly he subverts the whole basis, economic basis, of the Greco-Roman world. So, so the whole logic of I give so that you give, the whole logic of a transaction, two-way traffic, was simply taken for granted. It was unimaginable that any, the world could be in any way different. And yet it is. The fourth of these status quos is that the sense of earning love. You know, love is something you've got to earn. You've got to prove yourself worthy of it. Now, again, there are some classic texts in, in Luke's Gospel. Um, one of them is, is the Pharisee and the tax collector. Again, you know the story well, where they're, they're both praying. And uh, the Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or like this tax collector down the back. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income, and so on. Now, what's he say? I am worthy. And he's a good man, good man, bad system. It's I've earned it. What's the, what's the poor old tax collector down the back saying? Wouldn't even look up to heaven beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, I'm not worthy. But even the fact that he appears before God, not raising his eyes, suggests that he believes there's something greater than his sin. What's he praying for? Mercy. The mercy that sees sin but sees more. What's the, what's the Pharisee praying for? Not for mercy, because he doesn't need it. All he can do is, is thank God that he's not like others and present his credentials, his worthiness for God to God in order to get stuff, I presume. So that, that particular story is, is a potent uh, antidote to the kind of Dare I call it Pelagianism. Do you know what Pelagianism is? It's one of the, the great heresies of Christianity. And basically, basically, Pelagius was a Welsh monk who said that you can, with a lot of effort, you can earn your own salvation. 
You can prove yourself worthy. Now, uh, they call it the heresy of the West. Most of the heresies came to the East. This one was homegrown. Trust the Welsh. <laughs> but, but, so you, so you can earn, like the Pharisee is a, is a proto-Pelagian. Thinks he can earn his own salvation. The, the great truth that the tax collector has come to see is uh, you can't, but you don't have to. So don't, uh, don't try and do the impossible. And God doesn't ask you to do the impossible. However, the parade example of what I'm talking about here is, of course, the, uh, perhaps the greatest of all the moving parables, and that's the prodigal son. Now, uh, the two boys who look so, so different, chalk and cheese, aren't they? They are, in fact, pathetically alike. See, let's just quickly look at it. The young boy grabs the money and runs. He's once he's looking for the right thing, freedom, but in the wrong place. And where does he end up? In a pigsty. That's the freedom he finds, or the unfreedom. Looks for freedom in the wrong place, finds slavery. And he says, this is crazy. Here am I, the son, I'm starving in the pigsty. I'm going to go back to my father. Is there any big conversion? No. Who's he worried about? Himself. So he prepares the speech very carefully. Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your slaves. And I'll earn your respect. I'll earn your love. And you know, he, he, he prepares it, he reverses it, he's got it down. Word perfect. You know the feeling? He's, he, he's, he's, he's got it down pat. So he eventually arrives home, the father doesn't sit there and look through the window and say, oh, here he comes, I know him, I knew he'd get back. The father runs to meet him again, it's ridiculous, all of us, in this extravagance. And the, 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 the boy falls on his knees and begins his perfectly rehearsed speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop! The father cuts him short, he never finishes the prepared speech. And where does the father cut him off, or why? As soon as the boy says, I am not worthy to be called your son. Why is he cutting off there? Because it's never a matter of being worthy to be the son. You're the son because you're the son because you're the son. Not a matter of being worthy. It never is, never was. So he's, he's locked in the pigsty of worthiness. And he's got to get out of that pigsty if he wants to discover the truth of what it means to be the son. Now the older boy, he, he's a, he is a good boy, isn't he? He's been out there in those fields slogging away. He is worthy. And he comes back, and I, I don't blame him for being miffed. And what happens? The father comes out again. Second time. What's the boy say? All these years I've slaved for you. In other words, I'm the slave. I've slaved for you. And never once have you given me a, you know, a fatted calf to have a party with the mates. And this son of yours, he never calls him my brother. This son of yours comes back, he, you know, after spending all the money he and his women, he says, uh, and you kill the fatted calf. It's just unfair. I'm worthy. He's not. You see how the two brothers are so pathetic to life? 
their birth lot is a pigsty of worthiness. And what the father's reply is unforgettable. I think they're some of the greatest words in the scripture. He says, my son. Notice what he calls him? My son. In fact, I'll read it. You are with me always. In other words, you don't have to earn anything. You don't have to prove yourself worthy. You don't have to see yourself as a slave. My son, you are with me always. And all I have is yours. You don't have to ask. It's yours already. All I have is yours. But was it not right that we celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, nobody calls him? This brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. So there, there you see, again, a huge bomb put under this seemingly non-negotiable status quo of proving yourself worthy, earning God's love. I'll show you, I'll slay. All that goes under the, uh, the heading of Pelagianism. It's heresy, but it's everywhere. And it creeps up on us in all kinds of ways. Just by the way, the parables of Jesus are always unfinished. There are things we don't know. We don't know whether the older brother came into the party. It wasn't going to stop if he didn't. We don't know if the younger son did it all over again because he was given the freedom to do it again. But the unfinished character of the parables looks to your own response because, again, these stories are about you. How do you respond? And in that sense, you have to finish the parable, or the church has to finish the parable. Bad people in a bad system. Great chasm separation between the sinner and God. That whole thing of religion as transaction. I give so that you give, so that it's all about me and then proving yourself worthy. I'm going to earn your love. There are four elements of a seemingly non-negotiable status quo. The great overturning that Jesus works in the story in the end looks to the ultimate overturning that comes at the end of the Gospel, and that's the resurrection. See, all of this from the Magnificat through all that I've said really looks to what happens on Calvary and in the moment of Easter. Because you see, the most seemingly non-negotiable of all status quos is death. And if the human being is not set free from death, then we are still slaves. And the mercy of God has not done its work completely. It's only once Jesus rises from the dead as the firstborn from the dead, not the only born, the first of many brothers and sisters, that we can understand what the New Testament means when it says that Jesus is the final revelation of God's mercy. If he doesn't rise from the dead, he can't be that. 
And when, when they see Jesus die on the cross in that shocking way, they, uh, they say, well, that's the way the world is. It is tragic, horrendous, but there's nothing we can do about it. Put him in the tomb and walk away from the city, which is what they do in Luke's Gospel. Hence the Emmaus story. But in fact, that most seemingly non-negotiable status quo is overturned forever once he rises from the dead. So in that sense, again I say that the Christian Bible is one book. It is one story. It comes to its, its culmination only when Jesus rises from the dead and the disciples see him and hear him risen and therefore they explode out of the locked room onto the stage of world history to proclaim the risen one whom they've seen and heard. And as they say, we cannot deny our own experience. We have seen him, we've heard him, we've even eaten with him. He wasn't a resuscitated corpse. He was something far, far different. He had entered into some new dimension of existence, which is the fullness of human life. So in the, in the story of the resurrection, according to Luke, you have the, the ultimate triumph of mercy. Um, but what mercy does ultimately is destroy death. And if it doesn't, then it cannot be the infinite mercy that the Bible says is found in God. The Gospel of Luke, then, as I say, is all about mercy. There is, uh, in a sense, nothing else. It's not just this story or that story. Um, it's all about what God does in Jesus, not what God did only, but what God still does in Jesus, and that's the mercy but you'll never understand any part of, of Luke's Gospel, indeed any part of the Scripture, I would claim, unless you read it in the light of Easter. At that point, I think I shall return to silence and hand back to you, Mike, I think. Or to Andrea, is it?